Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. to another exciting episode of SFP Now. Um, today we've got a really great interview lined up for you guys. Um, it's with uh, Mark Millar, um, who of course created Kick-Ass, uh, Kingsman, Secret Service and countless other fantastic comics. Um, anyway, without further ado, we're just going to go straight in with the interview. I'd like to welcome um, comics writer extraordinaire Mark Millar to the show, um, who, of course, is known for having written um, comics such as uh, Kick-Ass and Wanted, but he's also well-known for having penned The Ultimates, um, which pretty much, um, in, in so many ways, set the template, I think, for the, uh, for the, for the Avengers movies in, in, in quite a few ways. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's great having you on. I've sort of like I've read quite a bit of your work and I'm familiar with you know quite a lot of what you've done. So it's um it's just brilliant to have some somebody on that that I know, um, <laughs> um, which doesn't which doesn't mean which doesn't mean to say that I'm, I'm I'm discouraging people that I don't know from coming on the show. It's just kind of like a little bit easier, <laughs> as you say. Um, but first off, um, how did you get into writing comics? Was it always what you wanted to do? Because it's you know. There's, there's so many avenues for writers to go in. Yeah, it's funny, like, being a comic writer when I was a kid was a bit like saying, you know, if you went to the careers officer, which I did, and say, look, I want to write Superman, it was a bit like, you know those crazy X Factor contestants who are like, uh, I want to be as big as um, Leona Lewis. You know, it's like I felt like one of those mental patients. And I was even aware of the careers officer looking at me like, you poor fool, you poor fool, this isn't a job. <laughs> machines do that or something, you know? Well, they, they never imagined that it was actually a job. And I was like, well, there's a guy called Stan Lee and he's done it for years and then there's guys who replaced him. And I was trying to explain and they were like, if you'd be interested in maybe doing one of these youth training schemes instead, you know? And I was like, well, no, I, I really want to write comics, but, you know, it never seemed to materialise. And I, I used to send off submissions. From when I was about 13, I was sending off submissions and I knew I really wanted to do it. And then just weirdly, everything sort of caught up with what I wanted. You know, like Alan Moore, when I was 13, broke in and uh, was working at DC. And then the next generation of guys who came along in the late 80s, like um, Grant Morrison, Pete Milligan, Jamie Delano, um, they all broke through as well. So suddenly, geography wasn't a problem. I thought I could live in Scotland, I could live in Glasgow. 
and still work for DC Comics in New York, you know? So, like, uh, it was just inspirational seeing all these other guys doing it, and I just, I think I just plugged away until eventually they got so sick of me, they just gave me work, you know? Mm -hmm. It's funny what you say about uh, careers officer, because uh, when, when, I was, uh, when I was leaving school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of sport and, and uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of the stuff, and I was, I was, I was song like um, pretty, pretty uh, multi-talented, uh, different creative sort of things. Um, so the careers officer asked me what I wanted to do. So I says, I, I want to be a male model, and, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I just, I just said it because I, I just couldn't think of what I wanted to do, and I thought, oh, this is a waste of time anyway. <laughs> and I got, I got this report back a few weeks later telling me odd traits and attributes I need to be a male model. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I thought, okay. Did it work out? Did it work out for you? No, no, it never worked out for me. I, I, I was on like, um, apparently, um, you know, with me only being five foot ten, I was about two inches too short. Oh, that's it. Clothes look terrible on someone who's two inches too short. You know, I know. <laughs> but you know, it's funny, when I was in primary school, I remember, that, that was a kind of common question that the class would be asked, you know, like, what's your ambition when you're older? And even then, I was still seeing comic book writer, and I remember a boy who was sitting beside me, this guy, Jared, said a burglar, <laughs> and, like, and he was only about seven, and, and the teacher said, you can't be a burglar, that's not a job, and he looked really upset, and he says, my dad's a burglar. And, and the weird thing was his dad was a burglar. <laughs> so it was a kind of family business, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, it was, uh, I grew up in an interesting place. Mm. Yeah, Songak. I'm, I'm from a, I'm from Songak, a government, you know, kind of like a, an estate here in, in in Manchester. So yeah, not not you you meet a lot of interesting characters <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, like um, you know, song like uh, used to be a drug dealer and lived down the street from us. It's called Tattoo Stan, and he, you know he was covered head to toe in tattoos, even his face. <laughs> <laughs> and you know everyone, everyone was terrified of him, and yet it was the most mango person you could actually meet. <laughs> it's funny because there was a guy in my neighbourhood growing up called Balsa. And I'd love to say he was the most uh, mellow guy, you know, but I remember he got drunk one night when he was about 15, stole a pickup truck and towed away the local telephone box and things like that, you know. So, so there's a lot of kind of characters and everything, you know, and, and I guess it all informs you as an adult, isn't it? You know, as you, as you get older, you kind of, uh, you bring a lot of that stuff to your work, I guess. You know, I mean, it's what makes you different from the guys growing up in uh, Santa Monica and L.A. and everything, you know, when you're doing your adult job. Mm -hmm. Um, well, you, you've actually wrote uh, some some of the big Marvel uh, stuff, such as Civil War, which, yeah. you know, as, as I was explaining earlier, it's kind of like, um, in, in a lot of ways, it's set the template for, for what Marvel are doing in films. And, yeah. and in your, indeed, your comic book, Civil War, is sort of like a, a big event, a, a, you know, a big example of that. Um, I'm just wondering, um, is, is there a particular confrontation or, or, or um, element from, from the comic book that you're really hoping to see on the big screen? Um, you know, it's just kind of fun seeing it in general, you know? Like, I mean, just Iron Man versus Captain America, the superheroes split in the middle. It's such a very simple Marvel idea. Like, when I was a kid, what made Marvel very different from DC is the DC guys all got along. You know, the DC guys just hung out and they, they were very adult and grown up. 
and the Marvel characters were always getting into fights. It was more like teenagers or children, really, you know? Um, you would always have the Hulk fighting the thing or, you know, a misunderstanding and the heroes all fighting each other. So Civil War was really just that. It was kind of like my inner fanboy, you know, just thinking, wouldn't it be cool to see Iron Man fighting Captain America or whatever? And, and uh, yeah, I think just after watching the Avengers a couple of times now, I think you just want to see these guys beat each other up, you know? Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious who's going to win those fights. And if I'm a 10-year-old boy going to see it, you know, that's even more exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of like, uh, was, was Civil War, did Civil War come out before Heroes came out on TV? Do you know, I, I, I can't remember, 2000, uh, 2006, so I'm not sure quite, probably, probably around the same time, maybe around mm-hmm. the same time. I'm just wondering if uh, Eric Kripke sort of like borrowed from Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, borrowed a lot, actually. You know, there was a lot of stuff, not from me, but uh, there was a lot of stuff you saw from other books. Like Watchmen, uh, I think the final kind of, season one, the final five episodes, there was a lot of Watchmen stuff in there. But, um, you know, these things are there to be stolen, you know, like, uh, you know, the companies generally, Marvel and DC, stole them from the creators, you know, so, like, <laughs> so I think it's only fair that new companies should steal them from Marvel and DC, you know, like, ownership's a funny thing when it comes to ideas. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, since you've actually left Marvel um, and and, um, and and what what we could call the mainstream uh, yeah. comics, uh, you've actually uh, had, a, had a pretty good stab at building your own, own comics universe, which, yeah. which has given us a lot of different, but very flawed... Uh, hero and anti-hero sort of characters um, and you know I, I kind of like that because I, I think as as human beings we can actually probably connect more with those characters than we can with you know with Superman who's you know let's face it's pretty much a god and Batman's just this um, just this rich guy <laughs> um, was that was it kind of always your intention to try and sort of like ground your, your, your characters more um, definitely I mean I think that's what Marvel in the beginning did very very well I mean Stanley told me um, a few years back when I was talking to him about Kick-Ass that you know I was saying a lot of people were saying uh, that you know the characters are unlikable and they're too flawed and all that kind of thing and he said that he got exactly the same letters with Spider-Man and everything in Fantastic Four uh, you know because people had grown up in the 50s and the very early 60s seeing these very, very pure characters of DC, like Superman and Batman never did anything wrong, you know? So to have, you know, human traits, even two-dimensional characters was quite a, a leap. And people couldn't quite get around a superhero being a little greedy or a little selfish or, you know, thinking in his own interests. And, uh, and, and they were, you know, they, they, they were odd. They couldn't pay the bills and things. They were just like real people. And what I've tried to do with my stuff is uh, do the 21st century version of that, really, you know, what Stan did. Um, so I just try and make them as relatable as possible. I mean, kick-ass is in so many ways my alter ego, you know, like lots of things from my own life, right down to hanging around on comic book message boards in my spare time, you know. So, like, um, you know, I just try and make it like a real person and, and, and graft the superhero stuff onto that. Mm-hmm. Well, I've recently, I've recently read the preview uh, edition of um, of Chrono Nuts, mm-hmm. uh, which I really enjoyed. I, I read the trade uh, okay. version, and you know, I got I got to say, initially, I didn't like the new character. I thought this guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the great thing about that story is, is is the journey he goes on. You know, he, he you know he sort of like goes on this journey. Um, you know, by by inviting the time time travel thing, he's got like won the ultimate lottery ticket. <laughs> yeah, and and um, you know, he finds that you know by you know by doing everything he wants, it's you know shit stuff is still going to happen. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. And I just I just sort of like loved that. And but what I also loved about it was sort of like the little twist at the end that you that you, that you did. Um, well, I don't want to give away that ending, but like, but you know, the idea is it's always interesting when you see a guy on a journey. You know, they think of Iron Man One. You know, like Tony Stark is a weapons dealer. You know, he deals in the destruction of human life. You know, at the beginning of that movie, and by the end of it, he's a hero. You know, mm-hmm. and I kind of I like that. You know, I like that journey. You know, we're, we're, we're quite often used to seeing this nerd becoming a hero or whatever. You know, whether it's Peter Parker or Kickass or whatever. Um, but sometimes it's quite interesting to see a guy who's who's kind of maybe selfish or whatever. You know, learning a lesson, and by the end of it, you know, he's he's someone you like, or maybe you don't particularly at the beginning. Like the thing I thought was interesting with him is I thought where the idea came from really was I was thinking if you're the sort of guy who could crack time travel, you know, like a Reed Richards or something, you know, you probably don't have a lot of time in your life for people and your relationships are probably a little bit sort of fragmented. Like you probably don't visit your dad enough, you probably can't make a marriage work and all this kind of thing. And it just gave me a human angle on a big idea. Like I love sci-fi that humanises it, you know, like that's what was great about the old Twilight Zones, that they would find a human angle on a preposterous idea that maybe accept it because of that, you know. So what I wanted to do was just a guy who didn't spend enough time with people cracking time travel ironically. Yeah. It's kinda of like Captain Kirk or all those all those crewmen that died and you know, he, he, he the the weight of that was always on his shoulders, but yet he couldn't he couldn't ever really show show the rest of his crew because he well, had to remain a leader. I think like people people have a hard time in the mainstream with big ideas sometimes, you know, like uh, you know like time travel for example, you know, is it's a difficult concept, you know, the idea of walking around in four dimensions or whatever, you know, flipping back and forth between periods. So I think you just you always need something to anchor it, you know, and, and I think it's the same with uh, with any form of sci fi. The best stuff is the stuff that hits the mainstream and goes as wide as possible. Like the original Star Trek series for me was much more interesting, much more successful than um, the subsequent incarnations of those characters. And I think it's because they, they grounded it really well. They weren't aiming at a niche sci-fi audience who they already had. I love the fact that children and grandmothers were still watching it as well, you know? So uh, that's what I try and do with all my stuff, you know, as much as it's big crazy ideas and everything, to try and make it something that, that anyone can understand. Um, is is Cronenarts gonna gonna get made into a movie? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, that's been put together just now. We've got um, the, the two main actors. We know who they both are. One signed already, and the other one uh, we're just waiting to get a, a signature with, um, which is really exciting actually because I think it'll be a great film. Like the guys who made Fast and the Furious are doing it over at Universal, and um, I'd already worked with this guy before. I did a movie called Wanted that was based on one of my books uh, with Angelina Jolie back in two thousand eight. Um, and and it's uh, the same producer, this guy Chris Morgan, who I really like a lot. I'm, I'm going to tell you in a couple of weeks just to go for a drink with him. Cool. I mean, you know, what I want to know is uh, how much of the movie's budget is going to go on the amazing car chase through the different time zones. <laughs> I know, it's funny. You know, that's comics, you know? It costs the same amount of money to, uh, to have two people talking in a comic as it does to have a four-dimensional car chase, you know, through time. And and that's what I love about comics. You never have to think about budget. And then some poor bugger in L.A. has got to sit and count the beans. Somebody's got to think, oh, my God, you know, who who do we cut so we can afford this car chase? And all that, you know? So, so yeah, I love it. That's why comics is always the main thing for me. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, so, something I've noticed about your books um, is you always seem to be able to... You, you, you seem to have a knack of being able to choose a perfect artist uh, and style for for each story that you do. Yeah. I mean, I love the visual action. In, 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 in Chrononauts and, and also the stuff that John, John Remitter Jr. did for, on, on Kick-Ass and, and yeah. stuff like that. Um, how, how do you go about choosing the artist? Do you, do you have a particular system? or? I just, I just actually think about, you know, who feels, who feels right for it. It's a bit like casting with a movie. Like, like I remember in Kingsman, 
we were looking at so many different people. Matthew's down in London, Matthew Vaughan, the director, and I'm up here in Glasgow, and Matthew would send a little link every night of that day's editions. And they're all guys between 18 and 25. They're all about the same height, same colouring, you know, sort of same haircut and everything approximately. But they're not right, you know, and you're looking at it and you think, no, that's not, that's not Exy, that's not the guy, you know. And, like, then suddenly Taryn Eggerson came in and Matthew, I was down in London at the time, I was in the studio, and Matthew says, uh, go downstairs and have a look in the edit suite. There's this guy I want you to have a look at. I think he could be the one. And I watched it and within 10 seconds, that was him. And it's the same with an artist, you know, like, you just... Like, I said to John Romita Jr. in 2006, like, I'm doing this thing, Hit Girl. It was originally going to be based around Hit Girl. And I said, I want you to draw it. And if you don't draw it, I'm just not going to do it. And that's why I sat for two years, because he was busy doing other things. And then, by the time I came to write it, I, I based it around Kick-Ass instead. And I wrote a wee bit of it. You know, I wrote the, some of the Hit Girl stuff. And then it was, uh, it was nobody else could have drawn it. Like, if, if it had been some slick kind of artist drawn it, it wouldn't have looked right. I had to have that gritty Marcus Scorsese vibe, you know. Similarly, somebody who didn't put the research in uh, that Sean does, Chrononauts could have been a disaster. Imagine a guy who didn't draw the backgrounds and, and make everything look so correct, and a guy who didn't have a love of vehicles the way that, uh, that, that Sean has. He, he loves drawing cars and trucks and things. So all, all of these things, it could have gone horribly wrong with the wrong artist. And sometimes even guys are brilliant at what they do, but just not right for a particular project. But I guess it just comes from being a fan. I just I look at the stuff and I think, you know what, you'd be great for this. Starlight, uh, a book I did a, a year or two back, uh, as an old kind of Buck Rogers coming out of retirement kind of thing, you know, and I wanted it to have a, a kind of Mobius vibe, you know, a very European look and everything. So I went and I got this guy, Goran Parmov, who had uh, a fantastic Mobius style, but had only ever really done crime comics like The Punisher that I'd seen. Um, so sometimes you can spot something in somebody and you just, you know they're right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because you, you just mentioned a hit girl there. And yeah. I, I remember when, 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 when the comic came out and, and subsequently the film came out and the media were going absolutely crazy about this y- young girl, you know, yeah. using all the foul language and stuff like that. And I, I remember sort of thinking, what, what world are these people living in? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I didn't write any of that swearing. That was uh, Chloe made all that up. <laughs> Even when she was ten, she had a disgusting mouth. <laughs> uh, but you just sort of like it kind of made me laugh because the media going, "Oh, it's gone too far this time," and I'm thinking, yeah, have, "Have these people not been around the housing estates or something?" <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know the funny thing? I thought we'd actually create more of a stir. I remember thinking, "We're actually going to go to prison or something," you know. And I was actually quite surprised. There was really just a couple of things like the Daily Mail and you know, just like a couple of kind of. These are people you'd expect, really, you know. And I, I thought everybody would behave. I was, I was actually quite shocked. I was a little bit disappointed, you know. But everybody was very sensible about it all. They were all like, "Yeah, it's just good fun. Don't take it too seriously." And all that. I was like, oh, right, okay. I thought it was going to be like the Passion of the Christ, where I'd be getting executed, you know, beheaded somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, today you've you've created nine original comic book, ca- you know, characters of your own comic book universe, your own. Um, can you can you can you see there ever being a time where maybe you, you cross a, a couple of them over, or a crossover? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, that is the plan. Um, my plan is to create 25 of these franchises. I think I'm actually on number 11 or something now. I think I'm on 11 or 12 or something. Um, you know, so there's a whole bunch of them. Of every, every one of them is either a film or a television show or being made as a film or a television show. And we're just trying to be Marvel. I mean, my plan is um, to be Marvel, but all the characters are owned by the guys who created them. You know, so... 
Dave Gibbons and I have got Kingsman Secret Service, Johnny Ramita and I have got Kick-Ass, Frank Whiteley and I have got Jupiter's Legacy and everything. We own it, so we own it in the same way that J.K. Rowling owns Harry Potter. Like, nobody has 1% of it outside of us. And it's great because, my God, you know, you go back seven decades and nobody owns these characters except the big corporations mm-hmm. who sell them on to other big corporations. Like, the original guys are lucky to get tickets to go and see the movies, really, you know? So so this, this was always the plan to build an, an ethical company where we, we all owned our own stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Superman, you know, Superman's a case in point, isn't it, really? You know, for, for oh, that. all of them. I mean, yeah. Superman actually is slightly better, but the guys who created it got a, a tiny pension. Uh, but at least they got something. I mean, it was it's still disgraceful, but, like, uh, but Green Lantern, I mean, the guys who created Green Lantern didn't even get credit on the movie. And maybe that's no bad thing. I mean, if I'd made, if I'd made up Green Lantern, I think I'd have been hiding when that film came out as well. But, like... Uh, but, you know, the, uh, it's, it's quite sad, you know, like they didn't get credit on the film, they didn't get any money, and uh, they certainly didn't get a pension when they were alive, and their families are still around, you know, I think some of them uh, have got widows, and uh, I don't even think they were invited to, the, to go and see the movie, you know, so, so Creator's Rights is uh, it's a very sad story, actually, when you, when you hear of these amazing characters that have all been made up, you know, Marvel and DC have both got about 5,000 characters each, approximately, and uh, and they're all owned by by corporations, really, which which is a shame, you know. So I'm really lucky to be in this generation of guys who you know own, own their own work. It's great because it means when there's a video game or a lunchbox or whatever, it's uh, it's us it goes to you know. And, and my kids can be spoiled brats in the future, you know. They can be the the vacuous Paris Hiltons of the year twenty forty. <laughs> Um, a book that you released earlier in the year, um, and this this kind of caught me interest, and I've only really just caught up with some some of the stuff. I mean, I've I've just I've just only just ordered Kingsman on trade yeah. for God's sake. I've seen the movie first, yeah. <laughs> um, and I've, I've just ordered the trade because I'm curious to see the differences between between that and the movie. Um, yeah. Like like you like you are. But um, the one that caught, that caught me interested is one you've done this year, MPH, um, yeah. which it's not only got a fantastic setting, but it's got a really fun concept. I'm just wondering, how did you come up with the idea for that? And... Well, my best pal from school, actually, was doing a consultancy thing, and I don't know what it's like with your best pals. I have no idea what my best pals do for a living, right? Like, you know when you get together with your pals, you never really talk about work? So I have no idea what they do, but one of them is a sort of computer guy, something to do with computers, and he was working out in Detroit. And he says, Major, want to come out? And I was like, yeah, all right. And, and I headed out and I went to see him. And like, uh, and I, it's funny because growing up in the west of Scotland, we've got this real love affair with America, you know. Like, I don't know if it's the same down your road, but, but growing up, I always thought of America as being like, everybody's a millionaire, you know. Like, everybody's got giant cars and tons of money and everything. And, and it was kind of a real shock to go out and see something that, that really looks uh, devastating. Like, in, in some parts of town, it looked like a, a movie set or something, you know, where you'd... You've seen the pictures in the papers if you've never been out there, you know, like yeah. grass thrown out of buildings and all this kind of thing. And, and crazy statistics like half the streetlights not working. Like the, the city couldn't afford to keep the streetlights on all the time, so half of them are switched off, which makes it a mugger's paradise and police stations and hospitals being closed down, you know, no-go zones, you know. So it, it did feel like Robocop, you know. I mean, we were up in a nice part of town, but we went for a, a drive about. I went for a barbecue down in uh, a part of town that wasn't so nice. And, like, um, I just thought, you know what, this is a great setting for a, a superhero study because superheroes are always about how awesome it is to, to live in the West. You know, it's always like a billionaire Bruce Wayne or billionaire Tony Stark and everybody's very professional and everything's all very fantastic for them and all that, you know. And I thought, it's not really that representative of, of the whole of America. You know, there's, 
vast chunks of the states, and now as I've travelled around a lot of the states, uh, not just the coast, I see that there's gigantic poverty in the states, and I thought, it's kind of interesting that, you know, we go and see movies like Iron Man or Batman, Dark Knight Rises and all that, and we're really worried about these billionaires, and half of the audience is watching it thinking, I can't even pay my rent, you know? <laughs> so, and it is weird, you know, that there isn't real people, there's no superhero stories about real people, so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do something that's not about Gotham City, and it's actually about the real world, you know? And, and Superman was created out of the poverty of the 1930s, so to maybe create four characters out of the poverty of present-day Detroit, you know, that was that was all my thinking behind it, I think. And also, Superman's origin story is, um, you know, he's, he's brought up on a farm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so you, you know, I guess back then, and, and even to a certain extent now, you can't get any more humble beginnings than that. But I, I think you're right. I mean, one thing I'd love to see more of is kind of more working class superheroes that, you know, that, that pretty much have nothing but the basics. Yeah, if you think about it, that's how most people live their life. You know, the average person is by nature average, you know, and superheroes tend not to be that. But I, I try and do that, you know, like Kick-Ass works in a comic book store. You know, he's a schoolboy who works in a comic book store who eventually becomes a policeman, you know, he's just a blue-collar guy, you know, and, and most of my characters, I mean, I haven't actually really thought about this until they've said it out loud, but, you know, the richest guy is Nemesis, who's a, a billionaire, but he's the bad guy and everything, you know, and I, I try and kind of ground everyone and make everyone a bit relatable, because um, you don't want everybody to be, uh, you know, as cool in their private lives as they are in their superhero identities. You know? mm-hmm. Well, you're, 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 the, you're the guy that Fox goes to in order to consult on, on their superhero movies. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, what sort of things do they usually come to you with that 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 kind of require um, a contrast? It's pretty fun. It's good. Like normally, my job is me sitting staring at the computer on Twitter when I should be writing. You know, that's that's my day sitting in my pants or something, right? And like, uh, but this uh, the Fox thing I started doing in August 2012. And I signed up for four years, so I'll be doing it for about another year, probably about another 11 months. And the idea is that I'm just sort of available, you know, so they get me out occasionally and I'll sit in a room with the execs, uh, you know, the people around the studio, and just talk about like, what would be a good character to use from the X-Men universe or something in his own movie. Like, the, the very first day I went in, in August 2012, the first thing I said was, you should do a Deadpool movie. Deadpool's a great character. It's a, it's a brilliant visual. Kids love it. It's one of really two or three Marvel characters that have been created in the last 30 years that have actually stuck, you know, that people mm-hmm. like. And, like, um, you know, there's a whole Deadpool section in my local bookstore. And, like, uh, you know, so things like that, you know, I'll just sit and then sort of say, you know, who'd be good to be in it. And we just bounce ideas around and everything. And, and I kind of love that because it's kind of like being a proper adult. I feel like Don Draper or something like that. I'm sitting there dressed smartly, sitting at a desk, sitting chatting with people. And then I come back home and I'm just making tea in my pants and all that again. Yeah. Yes, it sounds like a fun job. I, I, I'd <laughs> love to talk about comics and stuff all day. Yeah, and somebody pays you to come in and, and talk. Great, yeah. you know? And you get to criticise other people and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so you know, like my case um, is with with certain actors are saying he's got about as much charisma as Treebark. It's great fun because you know the stuff you sit in the pub and chat about with your pals. You know, you'll sit and have a drink and you'll be like, oh, you know who'd be a great so-and-so, you know. It's actually just doing that, but somebody's paying me, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I was just thinking, you know, Deadpool, 
um, with, with him being sort of like um, not not kind of having the moral compass that Spider-Man has. Yeah. <laughs> you okay. know, Spider-Man won't kill. Deadpool ha- won't have any hesitation and stuff like that. And with him being sort of like that bit more more edgier. Yeah. Do you think, do you think if that movie is sort of like successful with an R rating, but it could maybe possibly make a case for Nemesis? Because I'd love to see a Nemesis film. <laughs> well, we're, we're making a Nemesis film right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're doing it over at Warner Brothers. I'd love to see that, because I I, I often find the bad guys more interesting. (laughs) You know what, I think you're right. It's funny, because if you think about it, in 75 years, 78 years of superheroes, it's so weird that we haven't really had any bad guy movies, because in cinema, we have bad guy stuff all the time. We have, like, you know, Goodfellas or The Godfather and all that. You know, any, any of these films all around the world... There's great crime movies, but you never really get it about superheroes. They, they always just do the good guy. So that's why Nemesis, I think, was quite interesting. Like Tony Scott, um, who was the original director on it, Tony said to me that the reason he bought it, the reason he wanted it, was for that reason. He said it felt more like a European superhero thing, you know, when it was about the guy on the other side of the gun, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's also um, you know I I don't see a next a next Luther movie um, you know Paul Cornell a few years back uh, he, he was writing for Action Comics and he did this interesting storyline next Luther which explored you know him and you know and he wasn't necessarily that he was a bad guy he kind of saw himself as a hero <laughs> yeah I mean that's I think the Joker is another one as well I'll tell you a really interesting thing since 1966 you know like since the Batman movie in 1966 there has never been a Batman movie that's made a profit until Dark Knight Rises that didn't have the Joker in it wow <laughs> and it's crazy and people forget like, even Batman Begins which is actually my favourite of those three movies um, Batman Begins made 392 million I think but on a budget of 200 million and with marketing it would have had to crack probably close to about 500 million to break even and it made 392 so even Batman Begins made a, a small loss um, but it, when you put the Joker in those movies it goes crazy it goes absolutely crazy Batman Returns um, didn't do well uh, you had uh, Batman and Robin was a catastrophe, you know. I think Batman Forever did okay. Um, but the real money, the, the, it goes crazy whenever you put the Joker in it. The Jack Nicholson movie did insane business. I think in modern terms, that movie did something nuts, like $2 billion or something, if you adjust it for inflation, you know, it's, it's crazy. Um, and and he, Cesar Romero back in the 60s. So weirdly, I think people prefer the Joker to Batman. I think the Joker is actually what the general public are interested in. And I, that's what's going to be very interesting with Suicide Squad. Because I heard they were doing a Suicide Squad movie and I thought, all right, that sounds all right, you know. And then I heard the Joker was going to be part of the team and I thought, oh my God, that sounds amazing. It sounds really exciting. So, well, yeah. mm, I mean, I, I don't envy, uh, is, it, is, it, is it Jared Leto who's playing the Joker? Yeah. yeah. I don't envy the task he's got because, you know, you, you kind of had um, Heath Ledger and, or, or the Hoopnero with that, and, and before that, Jack Nicholson. So it's kind of like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not the sort of role that, <laughs> that, that you'd easily take on as an actor with that much of a legacy behind it. So he's, he's doing his own thing, though, which is interesting because when I heard him say, I thought, oh, because he is quite annoying, isn't he? He's one of those actors that's quite annoying. And then I saw that first picture and I thought, oh my God, 
Amen. That's that's literally interesting, you know, because it didn't look like a Joker I'd seen before, and that's what I felt when I saw Heath Ledger's. Because don't know about you, when I heard Heath Ledger was cast as the Joker, I was like, oh god, that sounds terrible, you know. And then when I saw that first picture, it, it looked fantastic. It looked great. So I, every generation just seems to have a new incarnation of the Joker, you know. Like as Batman becomes less interesting and more stiff in his armor and all that kind of thing, you know, the Joker seems to become more interesting. Yeah, I kind of have this. Um, I have this theory about Batman. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, based because of his, uh, his 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 fetish for rubber and stuff and like that. I yeah. think he's a repressed homosexual. You know. I don't think he's that repressed. I think he's probably pretty active. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I said that to a friend of mine who's a, a real diehard Batman fan, and you know, he wouldn't talk to me for weeks afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Happy with uh, uh, being gay, you know. I'd, I'd be happy reading a gay Batman comic, you know. Mm. It'd be good to see him getting off with somebody because he never seems to get off with anybody. I always think Batman looks sad. If he's a nice guy at home, I think that would cheer him right up. Mm. And, and, his, and his relationship with women have all been all, all kind of ended in disaster. Yeah, they always seem so. to die, fall off cliffs, get murdered, and all that. It's like. I don't know, maybe, I, th- I don't think he's cut out for the ladies. I think Batman definitely would be happy with the, the gents. Yeah, and I, I, I'm agreeing with that. I think, I think it's time to move on to another. <laughs> uh, what, what advice would you give anyone that is currently looking to try, try and write for comics? Um, and what pitfalls would you warn them about? Number one, do it. It's brilliant. It is honestly the most fun job in the world. It really is fantastic. Like I say, when I was five, six, seven, that's what I wanted to do for a living, right? And it, it, most people say, I want to be a dinosaur hunter, or I want to be a famous international footballer, or I want to be an astronaut. And being a, a comic writer kind of was as far-fetched as that, especially when you live in Scotland, you know, and in the 70s and 80s. And so again, to do it is just brilliant. You know, I mean, there isn't a day I don't switch on my computer and think, you know what, this is a pretty fun job. This is, this is great. I'm making up stories. And people are buying them. This is this is cool. And like, um, you know, so the number one thing is if you have a passion for it, do it. And if you're any good, you will absolutely find out. And my big advice is what I say to everyone is put it up online. Like whatever whatever line of work you go into, you don't get paid at first. And whatever you do, you have to train mm-hmm. and you have to prove your worth. So like nobody pays you, you know, um, to come and audition as an actor. Nobody pays you to come in and audition as a singer. And suddenly nobody's going to pay you to try out being a writer. You know, you've got to, you've got to do something to put your stuff out there. So what I would say to people is pick something short. Don't waste too much of your time. Make it as good as you can. Maybe 12 pages long, 20 pages long. Find an artist who's willing to work for free as well and be showcased in the same way you do do, like I said, this very short story, make it as great as you can, put it up online. My website, mellowworld.tv, um, actually has a forum for this, and a lot of people have got good work out of it at marveldc, that course, everywhere. Uh, even in Mellowworld, I've got a guy um, who I found on my website. Um, and and you'll be found, because so, think about it, there's so many garbage TV shows and movies and comics and everything that if you're even halfway decent, you're going to stand out, you know? So, like, uh, so I think if you get any talent and if you're excited by it, Give it a try, you know, and just see what happens. And, like, uh, it's amazing how fast people can get work and how, how fast their lives can change. I see it all the time. I see guys who've wanted to do it for years and then they just take that step and they try it and never look back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny what you're saying because I've, I've actually uh, been, been learning music for the past uh, three years. I've always wanted to play guitar since a very young age, but I never had the opportunity to do it. Yeah. And, you know, I've been getting lessons and um, I go to this place um, every couple of every couple of days and uh, play with other musicians. And I was just sort of like doing something in the studio the other day. 
And, and some guys are listening from outside the room. One of them comes in as we're wrapping up and goes, well, that was really good. Was that you? <laughs> but, and, you know, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm any good. But, you know, at the same time, I um, that, that kind of helps me get better, I think, the fact that I think I'm no good. Oh, definitely. Well, I think... I think you can always think you can improve, but you must have some self-worth in it as well. I think it's so important to actually recognise that what you're doing has value, though. You know, like because I think you'll never send it to anyone. Then you know that's what will always stop you from sending a demo tape or a sample thing out there. You know, cause if you think it's no good, you might be shy with it. You know, so I would always say take that step and and, and try it out. Um, but I think the minute you think you're brilliant, that's when you're in trouble. You know, like there isn't a single story I do that I'm ever entirely happy with, even the ones that have worked out really well. And have sold tons or made movies out of or whatever, you know. I always look at it and think, ah, you know what I should have done? I could have shaved two panels here. I could have started that scene over here and all that, you know. You can't help it, you know. And and I think that's a healthy thing, though, because the minute you think you're brilliant, that's when you lose it. You know, you you need need criticism. And I always listen. I mean, I've got a new series that's coming out March or April next year that I'm going to announce uh, at the beginning of November. With a, with a big artist, a guy I've wanted to work with for a long time. And um, I sent the plot around to some pals this morning, and then we all talked about it. You know, I was like, does this make sense and all that? You know, I, I just like to make sure that it's watertight. Is there any plot holes you can see in things, you know? And I always do that. I like to I like to hear other people's opinions. And I, you know, I, I see Matthew Vaughn doing that as well, and I think... Like, he's, he's as interested in what an intern, like a runner or whatever is doing around the office, like he's as interested in their opinion on a scene as he is from the editor or the, you know, the cinematographer or whatever. Because everybody's a potential audience member, you know, so if somebody's like, that doesn't work, you've got to listen, you know. And the minute you shut yourself off, that's whenever you, you stop doing work that people respect around. And I think also, I think also the thing, thing is, if you're, as, as the creator of this thing, you're, you're quite close to it, so it's usually good to have the outside opinions to sort oh, of totally. give you, you know. And the, the internet keeps you... Uh, it keeps you going as well. It's funny. I mean, on the one hand, you know, you have people saying, "Oh, you're a genius," and all that, you know. And then on the other hand, you have people saying, "He is literally the worst writer I think who has ever been invented," and all that, you know. And the and the one time stream, you know, you will see that, you know, on the one news feed, and you can't take either seriously, you know. I mean, it's lovely to be praised and everything, you know. Uh, but if you if you believe the praise, you believe the criticism. You just have to trust in your own stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. In in your comics, you you make loads and loads of references. To pop culture uh, and such is, is one of the other comic book characters um, now as, as a kid growing up uh, what stories films and comics from pop culture would you say had the most influence on you in terms of sort of like spurring you into in, into the creative right that you become well I think I had a pop culture puberty I guess between the age of 5 and about 12 13 maybe and I think that defined what I was going to be into my entire life like I saw Jaws when I was five. Um, my brother's girlfriend took me to it. And it was just me and her. It was weird, actually. I don't know why she took me. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, and I remember she had, she had a hanky. It was very British. She had a hanky over my face, this kind of, like, uh, personalised handkerchief. <laughs> she had that over my face for most of the movie. Like, it was one of Michael Jackson's kids or something like that. And she, she just uh, covered up my face any time I looked scary. But I could look through the lace and actually see see the movie. Um, so I remember every bit of it, and it became my favourite movie, you know. Then I saw Star Wars about a year and a half later, two years later. Um, then there was Close Encounters, Superman, uh, 
up through Indiana Jones, Superman 2. Um, and I think by 12, that was it. You know, by the time, by the time Indiana Jones had hit, that was it. It was, it was cast an eye on this is who I was going to be for the rest of my life. This is what I'm into, you know. Um, and, and then other things came along like Ghostbusters and Gremlins and stuff. I loved and all that, but, but they weren't definitive for me. They weren't like the, the, the things that formed me, the way Star Wars and Superman and stuff like that did. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big Indiana Jones fan myself. It's funny, I've always wondered how it plays in Germany. Mm. Well, I'd love to see the box office in Germany, you know. It's like, I wonder if they're like, ah, you know, Indy's a little tough on those guys, you know. It's like, uh, <laughs> I wonder if it doesn't go down so well over there. Or, 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 or even Russia for the last one. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I think that movie didn't go down anywhere. I think everybody was like... Who cares? <laughs> yeah, they they kind of lost so much of the of the characters' roots. They should have kept it. It should have kept him fighting supernatural things as opposed to aliens. Yeah, I know. I think I think he had just gone too far away time wise as well. Like, it's funny when I was a kid. Like, I mean, I was born in 1969. So and my dad was in his forties when I was born. So my dad experienced World War Two. Right? Mm-hmm. So like, um, so World War Two and Indiana Jones and the Nazis. It didn't feel that far away. It was just like a generation back. But now, now World War Two is like the Civil War in these kids, or it's like the Jurassic era or something, you know? It's, I think it's too far away to relate to. So I think Indy, I love him, I absolutely love it, but it just belongs to its time, probably. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, do you have any of the books that I do out that you'd like to give a plug? Or? Um, I think September, Chrononauts, I must buy. Did we talk about Jupiter's Circle? That's out in October. Um, I don't think we did, now. Oh, right, I'll very quickly talk about this. Um, Jupiter Circle, it's, it's the prequel to the biggest book I've ever launched. I did a book called um, Jupiter's Legacy that came out a couple of years back. Um, that's Volume 1 has just finished and Volume 2 is being prepared at the moment with an amazing artist called Frank Whiteley. He's pretty much the best in the industry. Um, he uh, he and I did this book that was a labour of love. It was a big grown-up superhero opera, you know. It was like a thing that covered three generations of superheroes and everything, you know, and like uh, everything I ever wanted to do with a superhero book is in this. It's political, it's romantic, it's a big Shakespearean family drama and everything about what it's like to be the children of the world's greatest superheroes. Like, imagine you're Superman and Wonder Woman's kids. Like, and you grew up kind of like Carrie Fisher or whatever, you know, you grew up as a, as a Hollywood kid, essentially, that everybody knows, um, and you're always being compared to your incredible parents, you know? So, um, so that was a kind of interesting book I did a couple of years back. Um, the prequel to it, which is the story of the parents, I've done as a kind of superhero period drama, set in 1959. It's kind of like Mad Men meets the Justice League. So it's a, it's a period drama uh, with these kind of cool, lovely superheroes who look awesome, but in their private lives, they're just ordinary people, you know? So, like... One's secretly gay, which in 1959 is really interesting because it was at a time when the world was a bit less progressive and, you know, he'd have been ruined if he'd been outed as being gay. So you've got G. Edgar Hoover blackmailing him, you know, uh, you've got a superhero having an affair with a girl who's 19 and cheating on his wife and everything. She's a, a young girl who's wanting to be a superhero. He's pretending he's going to make it happen for her and things, you know. So you've got all these kind of you've got alcoholism, you've got loneliness and all that. It's, it's just a big grown-up old Thomas Anderson kind of drama with superheroes set in 1959. So the Chrononauts is your buy for September, October, Jupiter Circle. They're, they're the two big books that I've got over the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Matt, thanks for, um, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great having you and you know, great enough talking to you. Oh, you too. Uh, so, uh, anytime you give us a shot.
that about sums things up for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, as always, you can actually get um, another version of this show on our Bangkok Talk Radio channel, which um, has our video discussion and, and such um, with myself and Raisa. And you can get that at www.bangkoktalkradio.com forward slash SFP now. Um, thanks as always for listening. We've got a great show planned for next week. Um, it's very uh, Doctor Who centric. We'll be talking to uh, writer and producer Andrew Kinsella about his uh, Doctor Who um, audio series, um, which has, interesting enough, Doctor Who meeting up with the uh, legendary Sherlock Holmes. So we have that to look forward to. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back at you next week. Bye for now. <laughs>